when I look at the political landscape and the economic landscape of the world, I really have a difficult time accepting that this is what life should be. I had so many concerns about education, technology, agriculture, barbuda, health, the environment. You, you will be so surprised as to what they are engaged in. If we can do that, we can walk on that path, we will find a lot of solutions, we'll find a lot of adventures, we'll find a lot of answers. We need to foster that entrepreneurial spirit. No judgment, no negativity, all good vibes and conversations. All of this and more right here on Grassroots Radio. Hi, my name is Renisa George. I am 38 years of age. I'm a writer, a playwright. I own my own media and communications company. And I'm also heavily participating in promoting um, and developing the arts in Antigua and Barbuda. And I just recently added creative director to an events management company to my portfolio. Wow, you are definitely up to a lot. Yes, I am. Tell us how you first got into your field, which I guess would be described as communications or public relations. When I went away to study in school was accounting and finance. I'm really good at oh, wow. numbers. Yeah, so I transitioned from that about five years ago. Um, what happened is I would always have a nine to five in some kind of accounting or finance, um, accounting and finance industry. And what I would tell people is that salary would... Uh, fund all my other projects on the side. Mm-hmm. I love writing and I love content creation. And I wanted to figure out a way to make money from that because it's something that I have, that I really love doing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I started to do some research about it and decided, okay, the best way to really do that is to start my media communications company. And um, with the whole influx of how media has changed so much now, especially relates to the visibility that um, brands and clients, customers can get from social media, um, I kind of got into the market at the right time, okay. especially in the Caribbean, specifically in Antigua. It's still something that is new that we're still trying to navigate um, a kind of how, um, and I'm able to help my clients do that. And with that, I've been able to find myself, my company, my business, my expertise in different industries. I do um, editorial for magazines, I do content creation for websites as well, too. I do press kits, media kits mm-hmm. um, for festivals, for companies. I work on brand marketing proposals for clients as well, too. So you see, there's a wide array of options that I yes. found myself in just because I made that step. And mm-hmm. it still helps me to maintain that creative spirit that I have. And how do your clients typically find you? Well, a lot of it has to do with referrals, really. As I said, when I was still in the accounting and finance field, I would have a lot of projects that I worked on the side, um, little jobs and stuff and so forth. And what happened is when I started my company, I reached out to those persons in a big way. Um, My first big contract was with the UN Women organization Mm -hmm. um, to work on a public awareness campaign um, to end gender-based violence. And that was through funding for gender affairs here. And as an activist, I've worked with gender affairs for years. So they were one of the first persons that I had reached out to, and they told me of the opportunity to come on as a consultant for a project. So there are certain like billboards that people will see around um, 
a promote ending violence against women and children. That was actually spearheaded by me. And that was my first big contract when I started my company years ago. Awesome. I have seen those billboards around Antigua, actually. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah. Fantastic. I guess what what I know you from personally is Art, Culture, Antigua, that blog. Yes. And also Black Girl in the Rain magazine. Mm -hmm. Are those two um, projects of yours, are they still active? So Black Girl in the Ring magazine evolved into the Black Girl in the Ring Foundation. I'm one of those persons that what I've developed into now is that everything that I do has to have at least a five-year shelf life. And there has to be tangible benefits to the community. So with Black Girl in the Ring magazine, I still felt that I was falling short with really making an impact like I wanted to. So um, step back and for two years, we worked on structuring, structuring it into a foundation. So it's now the Black Girl in the Ring Foundation. And we have two specific projects that come under that umbrella. Um, Project PUSH, um, which is that there's a school um, in Clear Hall community where I grew up that we help to put the young girls who, you know, come from certain households that it's difficult for their families to afford them um, mm -hmm. basic education. We fund their tuition. Oh, that's uh, Primary school, yes. Mm -hmm. Um, and for me, it was a matter of starting home first. Um, that is a community I grew up in. I'm very much aware of some of the struggles of the families in that area. Um, so that is what the Black Girl in the Ring Foundation developed into. Art culture and Antigua as well, too, has taken on a bigger scope as well, too. Uh, but that hasn't come back on stream yet. I'm not going to give away too much about that. But sure. both of them are still in existence just in a bigger way, a uh, bigger visible way as well too, um, which therefore has a bigger impact on the community. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. Yeah. Why is gender specifically such an important part of what you do? Why have you chosen to focus on that particular issue in our society? Um, because that's what I grew up in that space. So the street that we lived in in Clare, I'm the oldest of three girls. So there's no boy, I don't have any brothers or anything. And I'm the oldest of the three. And I come from a traditional household where it, my parents have been married um, for many years. They've been married for 40 years now. Yeah. And um, yeah, <laughs> they've been married for 40 years now. So I grew up in a traditional household. Um, we didn't grow up in money or anything, but we weren't poor or anything either. Mm -hmm. But what class. I can say is living on the street that we lived in, I saw persons my age with different experiences and different realities. And one of the things that, st that stuck out was mm -hmm. the fact that a lot of the young women were not educated. Their mothers had them early and they would go on to have children early too, and the cycle would continue. Mm -hmm. um, my parents, I always made fun of my dad who for a long time didn't understand the whole concept of feminism. And I would tell him, I'm like, that's funny because you raised three feminists. Mm -hmm. uh, my sisters and I are very strong-willed, um, different personalities. But that one thing about being independent, being caring, empathizing with others, looking out for other women. I'm always amused when I hear women say, oh, you know, I don't have women friends and stuff like that. I find that weird because that has been the circle that has kept me strong and lifted in really, really bad moments. 
Um, so for me, it's kind of like I had no other choice. Growing mm-hmm. up, being the oldest, taking care of my sister, my parents encouraging that. I also went to Antigua's high school as an all-female school. Mm-hmm. And um, I fostered an amazing friendship that's still there up to now um, with women. So women have always been like a central figure in my life. So they always played that focal role in a lot of the things that I do. It might sound a bit damn corny, but part of my destiny. Um, and a lot of the things that I've been able to achieve is, is because other women have pushed me forward. That's really beautiful. <laughs> and, well, do you find that it's been difficult to do that work in the culture that we occupy? I mean, do you find that there is a greater instance or prevalence of this kind of gender bias in our culture than, say, in a more typical Western country? How I got into that space, um, at the time, it was my creative twin, um, Sarah Errol, and we had two other friends, and we started Women of Antigua. We were about maybe 24, 25 at the time. And they weren't young women occupying that space like that before. Mm-hmm. So we went through those difficult moments. But what I can say now is that we don't have any of, well, not that we don't have any of those issues, but now the young women that are there now, young women that occupy that space now in Antigua, don't have to deal with a lot of the negativity that we dealt with. Mm-hmm. Um, because somewhat what has happened through media is that being a feminist and even being an advocate, social justice advocate, is the cool thing to do. Right. You know? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's kind of normalized somewhat. It doesn't take away from the stigmas attached to it. The assumption that you don't like men. You know, of course, you know, you have the Bible thumpers. Because yeah. with being a social activist, you look out for everyone, you know? Yeah. Um, regardless of your choices and tastes, you look out for everyone. That means you have to look out for your LGBTQ sisters and brothers. That's not an option. It was difficult initially navigating the space and being women who are married um, or in relationships. And, you know, of course, oh, they rule their men, that type of stuff and so forth. It was a bit weird. And I always felt like we needed to defend ourselves against that. Where now I'm in the space with like, okay, you know, people try to start stuff and people perceive things are kind of how. But I feel like if you're well-intentioned and doing what you're supposed to do, that it will always be that people understand and acknowledge um, the work that you're doing. And definitely the environment is so much different now in Antigua. Um, We're more accepting than before and so forth. So do you have any turning point moments where you could specifically point to and say, you know what, this used to be this way. And then maybe something precipitated a change or when you first started Um, noticing that people were reacting differently to what you were doing. We have more public awareness um, among the young people than we did when I first started out like over 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of that I have to give the volunteers and the gender affairs department their kudos for that, for sticking with it. Um, the president executive director is somebody who is actually an intern. So when we used to be volunteering and doing stuff for women of Antigua, she would have still been in school and she was actually an intern That's at Gender amazing. Affairs. 
Yes, so a lot. So that it is, is it amazing? So what that shows me is how they develop and foster her into this amazing, powerful person to head this department now and seeing all these things happen. Like it's not somebody that, you know, she just picked up and like, okay, you know, this is an option here for me. She's been that since the age of 13, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and I feel like the community that we occupy, those are a lot of the stories we developed along those lines. One of the biggest, um, one of the biggest accomplishments for me was to see the crisis center come on board. That has been something that we wanted to see for years and knowing the services that they provide and how many women and men they have helped. Can you say more about the crisis center and what that is and how it came into being? Um, so the crisis center was part of the same project that I had a contract with. So there were like multiple different projects under the one big project. And one of them, um, one of the last parts of the project was bringing on the crisis center. Um, so what they do is then they provide free counseling for women and men that are uh, sexually abused or going through any form of domestic violence. All of these are free services. Um, they're also available for let's say someone is raped or assaulted, they can call the crisis center directly and come there and the police will come directly to them to take their statement. And they will also be seen by a doctor who of course um, initiates the rape kit. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's set up in such a way that it's a welcoming space. You come there for dark, but it's, in a wel- it's a welcoming space and all the staff and volunteers are welcoming people and everybody confidential because a lot of the issues um, the public will have is that oh you know i don't want anybody in my business that type of thing Mm -hmm. um but the gender affairs has done an awesome job with fostering that type of trust um of course it took a a while to build but yeah the crisis center is doing amazing work um they have a lot of outside partners as well that come in um the volunteers as well too um, to be a crisis counselor or to be an advocate. You know, you have the, the 24-hour emergency line. You call that phone regardless of when somebody answers. Somebody's on the other on the other line that will answer and assist you as much as possible. So when I say there was a big turning point, it was something that was necessary. And um, I'm happy to see that so many women and men are benefiting from it at the moment. I'm really happy to see that as well, because I know even growing up in Antigua, there's always been this stigma around reporting sexual assaults and anything of that nature. And even like you're saying, the confidentiality issue, but also just not being believed if you go directly to the police or having that same kind of gendered experience where, well, you're a woman, so you're not taken seriously or the discomfort of having to relate your story to some guy. And providing that safe space for you to be able to do that. Yes, that's um, beautiful. Because I always tell people that uh, you cannot, you cannot force someone to tell their story. You can make it easier for them mm-hmm. to talk to you, but you can't force them to tell their story. Um, and you really can't heal if you don't talk and get assistance and support. Mm-hmm. And the crisis center provides that space, that atmosphere, that environment, that. AIDS victims and survivors of sexual abuse. That's such an important service. Yes, it is. 
And so as someone who is working in this field that is fraught with a lot of trauma and being so close to it, and I don't know if you have any personal experience with this kind of thing yourself, but how do you maintain your mental strength and maintain like a productive mindset to be able to work in this area without kind of succumbing to some of the negative emotional consequences that can be part of this work? So here's the thing with that other friends that I have around the region who are advocates um, for the last two years they've been talking a lot online about taking care of yourself mentally as an advocate because a lot of trauma over and over again will have you in a very dark space oh yeah um, and for me I use a lot of my projects and work to distract from what I would soon find out were issues I needed to deal with personally. And what happened is a year ago, I had a proper mental breakdown. So I haven't done any advocacy in the last year because I made a decision to step back and focus on myself personally. Because what forced my hand mm -hmm. was the fact that the mental breakdown extended into my work professional life. So I was not able to provide the services to my customers and clients like I normally would have. So it affected work. Mm -hmm. You know, and it take affecting work for me to step back and be like, okay, this is not a good space then. Um, because yeah. for me, work used to distract from a lot of things. You know, right. I would use it as my coping mechanism. Mm -hmm. But clearly you can only do that for some time. And at just around my 37th birthday with other things happening around, I just broke down. It happened gradually over like a month and a half. And then it kept, it kept, it kept, to, it came to a head. And then I was like, okay, so I really need to go see a therapist. So I've been seeing a therapist for the last year. Initially, I used to see her quite often. She would come to my home. Um, I live with my sisters, but at the time they would have been at work, so she would come during the day. Mm -hmm. So the point in time, I did not want to go outside. I didn't want to be seen. I didn't want to talk to anybody. Um, I was just in a very weird space and in a, like literally on an island by myself. Mm -hmm. um, my memory was fading. I wouldn't remember certain things in conversations. I could engage in conversation with you, but then I'd tap out at some point in time. And I just kind of stayed inside. Wow. Um, and it was difficult being accountable and facing myself, knowing that, okay, you're an advocate. You're always pushing for people to get help. And you're apprehensive about getting help yourself. You didn't even know that you needed help like this. Um, so there was a lot of shame and embarrassment about it. Um, just because, you know, like I just felt like I was an imposter. You know, that I was just putting on this mass for a very long time and know that I'm being forced to deal with it, it's obvious. Like I didn't like going places where my friends were and stuff because I was obviously not well. I didn't want anybody to ask me how I was doing because I could not answer honestly. Mm -hmm. You know, I just went missing. Well, I really appreciate the bravery that you're displaying in telling the story and being really open about what the experience was like and the fact that you did experience all this shame even within yourself, even being an advocate, it didn't protect you from 
the reality that this happens to people if you're not dealing with your stuff. And it was really hard um, coming to terms with that reality. Mm -hmm. You know, saying to my mom, you know, I'm not well and I won't be well for a while. And this is why. And this is what I'm doing to get better. Mm -hmm. And even having the conversations with my sisters, who little things they would be able to look at over the years and be like, okay, something's not right there. But not knowing what it was because I never spoke about it. Being the older sister and then also feeling like a burden to them. Like thinking about it now, I'm just ready to start crying. It was a lot. Yeah, I can having, hear the emotion in your voice. Yeah, having to face yourself like that. I know for sure I've lost an opportunity because of that mental breakdown. There are certain clients that I dropped the ball with that I can never get the opportunity to fix that. But those were all realities that were easier said than done to deal with, you know, on paper, you know, it's like, oh, this is what you got to do or whatever. But it's a difficult thing. I remember saying to somebody, I know, understand why people sit in their trauma untreated for years. Mm-hmm. Being accountable and looking at yourself in the mirror and saying, okay, this is how I've harmed myself, whether it was the space I was in, whether it was what I was doing, whether, whether it was the kind of energy that I was feeding on. It's difficult to look at yourself and say, oh, you're that person. And then seeing you're that person, then you start to think about, well, how does my circle perceive me? Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Um, it's like, it's difficult. It's like, okay, I see why people sit in their trauma now. Because uh-huh. it's an interesting split between how you're perceiving yourself in that moment of really deep darkness and then having this professional persona. Yes. Um, this is Lanisa George and she's amazing and she's hyperproductive and the expectation that comes with that. And then when you're just not able to be that person that you want to be, the ideal just, version of yourself. I'm just not. I've turned down interviews, opportunities, and been invited to spaces and not gone because I had to do the work. It was 37 years of untreated issues. Like that doesn't get fixed in a few months, mm-hmm. nor like in yeah. a year. So I am in recovery and I'll be in recovery for a long time. And then I also said to somebody, um, I also tell people, it's about how I manage it, how I manage my triggers. It can be difficult when you meet new people or even to be in a relationship, especially a new one, yes. when you're going through all of these changes and saying to them, okay, this is what's happening to me. and the fear is they will walk away saying, okay, this is too much. Mm-hmm. But then on the flip side, um, you can't ask people to take up your burdens, you know, and you have to respect that and understand that. Um, I remember a friend used to say to me, you know, people need to do a better job of asking their circle of friends and family if they have the capacity to deal with whatever it is, trauma, whatever it is that they want to share with them. Don't assume that, um, you know, it's all right that we encourage people to share whatever they're going through, but you also have to take into consideration that some people where they are can't handle that. Yeah. I think that's a really important point. Like it's one thing to hear the stories and to know that something's happening and a very different thing to make sure that person is okay and has the support that they need. Yeah. Because a lot of times you could share something with someone and then 
you never talk about it again. It never comes up again. And then you think to yourself, well, do they really care? Because I said this really huge thing Mm -hmm. and now it's just gone by the wayside. Like it was just a, you know, piece of entertainment. Yeah, I've had one or two situations where I had to, within myself, understand, okay, where they are, they can't deal with what, mm-hmm. you know, they care about me, they love me, but they're only there or able to provide support in a certain capacity. I had one friend, um, somebody younger, they've had issues, su- suicidal thoughts um, for years, and now, you know, they're in a good place. Mm-hmm. And I remember when they asked me how I was doing this a bit after my birthday. I don't know what got into me. I went into this long rant about everything I was dealing with. And they literally stepped back and they're like, you know, what I'm dealing with now, I love you, but I can't. Mm-hmm. I can't I can't take what you're giving me right now. Mm-hmm. And initially I felt a bit hurt. But then, you know, I understood what it was, that they just weren't in a position to, you know, provide that support just because of what they were going through. Yeah. And I needed to be okay with that, you know, not take that personal. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, once again, everything is easier said than done. <laughs> of course, especially therapy. Especially so, therapy. I guess what are some of the things that you've been learning on this therapeutic journey so far that you've been able to integrate into your life and help yourself build those stronger support systems that are keeping you going? One of the weird things that I've taken away from therapy that people always find kind of weird when I talk about it is personal accountability. Mm-hmm. And uh, kind of throwing away the notion that people owe you something. That if you're kind to somebody, they automatically must be kind to you. Um, The understanding that nobody owes you anything and you don't owe anybody anything. And what that has done for me um, is in situations where people fall short, whether it's something professionally or personally, I have been able to take it as, well, that's them and not anything with me. So it takes away a lot of guilt or the feeling of wanting to be accepted. My focus has just been on myself and my healing. And once I can be a better person, I therefore can function and continue to be this great, amazing, phenomenal woman that I'm not capable of being. There's a level of accountability that you have to take on if you're really to go far. And it's not a matter of, oh, I don't need nobody or anything like that. But, you know, wherever you are, okay, how can I look at this situation different? What could I have done better? What can I do different moving forward? Hmm. See, you said people find that strange. I mean, do you have an example in like how so? That's, that sounds strange to me that people find that strange. So I know this is what triggers me. How do I deal with it when I feel that coming on? Mm-hmm. Um, how you operate with people. Okay, you might be a selfish person. How do you treat your family, your circle of friends, your co-workers better? 
it's really the assumption is is that you know you just need support you need help whatever and but i say yeah but a lot of it is focused on personal accountability you know and where it's difficult for you to do it on your own you should be able to say that or to say i'm struggling with this or i'm struggling with that when i was going through my really bad days having spoken to my sisters about what my situation was they came up point when I could say to them, okay, I, they would just come home from a regular day from work and I would be there and I'm just like, guys, today's a struggle day. Mm-hmm. And then trying to figure out, okay, why is it a struggle day? Talk to us. And them learning what depression looks like. Mm-hmm. What is somebody who is considering suicide, what they're, how they present themselves, the things that they say, what they do, that type of thing. Because what happens is people struggling with mental health issues, it doesn't only belong to them. It belongs to everybody that they have to interact with. That's so true. So it's all fine from far to say, oh, she's not right in she head. But then she works somewhere. She may have children. Mm-hmm. She may have a partner. You know, how is she functioning in those spaces? Right. And how are those persons dealing with her issues? Mm-hmm. Um, so there's that level of awareness that I didn't have before as to what have I done because I'm in this space that has affected mostly I've thought I've had to think about it about my sisters because we're very close and we live together. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. not talking and isolating myself. How does that make them feel? Literally not knowing what it is, but I just gone missing. Mm-hmm. Or being responsible for something and not following through because where my head is that I just can't, I just can't do it. But then you've disappointed somebody, you know? And yeah. then therefore they question your trust. I think I'm a very self-aware person and it has grown even more in the last year. So you find I don't do the whole, oh, somebody did me something or this is unfair to me. I would be more in the, okay, how can this be better? Do I need to not do this anymore? Do I need to do it differently? Do I need to seek help? And that's across the board, professionally, emotionally, um, personally. I navigate things differently. I don't react as quick as I used to, to think, oh my God, the universe is against me. Uh Yeah, and that's one of the ways how I deal with my triggers. You know, feeling like, okay, I'm disappointed or what I did doesn't make any sense. Rather than, okay, well, we're in this space now. What are we going to do to get out? So it seems like one of the things that's happened as, a pro- as part of your therapy process is you've moved from this place where you're occupying that victim mentality, right? Where you're still seeing yourself as someone who is being acted against or things are kind of against you in a certain way to recognizing the power that you have within yourself, within your own capacity for agency to mm-hmm. not, not focus on the things that are negative and the things that you can't change and what you don't have, but to put yourself in a position where you are more focused on the choices that you do have and the things that you can control. Yes. And, and so the you things can that keep I can moving change. forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the things that I can change. One of the things that used to happen is that I could not sleep what would happen? I would drift off to sleep and then for whatever reason, I would just stop reading. Yes, and then I would jump up and have to try and catch my breath and it would always be like an emotional thing where I'm crying. Like I thought about, I said to somebody, do you know how many times I've thought about death in the last year? And that scared me a lot. 
because I would think like, okay, today is my last day. So what am I going to do? And it wasn't so much about suicidal thoughts, but more so about something can happen to me. And it had me looking at life differently. Like what, who owes me an extra five years here on earth? Mm-hmm. Why do I think I'm owed that? You know? Um, and what can you do today? Like I was nervous that I was not going to see my 38th birthday, which was on the 10th of August. I was nervous that when I woke up on the day, there was rush of emotion. Like, thank you. Like I'm here. I don't know who it is. Thank you that I got here. And saying that to friends and families, most of them not understanding like what's happening. I'm just like, y'all don't understand. I just, Mm -hmm. I just didn't think I would make it to my 38th birthday. And I mean, you don't have to answer this in any level of detail that you're not comfortable with, obviously. But I'm just wondering what precipitated that kind of terror? Like what put that in you? What should I say? How can I explain it? So after um, on the advice of my therapist, having to talk to my sisters and friends um, and realizing a lot of things that I didn't tell them, and starting to realize that if I were to leave tomorrow, there would be a lot of things that they would find out about me that I didn't know before. And then there were a lot of things that I hadn't addressed or dealt with that I had a shame of it coming out after I'm no longer here. Mm-hmm. So, so you were keeping a lot of secrets. Yeah, I, I felt like there was a lot of things about me and happening with me that nobody knew about and I thought about if it is that I'm not here tomorrow or next week when that comes out what is my family going to think like what are my parents going to think and what are my sisters are going to think and I just started saying to myself I need to fix these things before Mm -hmm. I die that's literally how I felt Mm -hmm. I need to fix this I need to get this done so whatever it is that my family will, whenever they come across it or whatever, um, they would know about it. It was, it was just a very weird space. But it was a matter of me just trying to rush to fix a lot of things that were wrong because there was a shame of it coming out in my absence. Mm-hmm. So then every day that I felt like, okay, my chest is heavy. This is going to be the day I die. And I didn't get to get A, B, C, and D done. You know, um, I didn't get to make certain amends. I didn't get to fix certain things. My family, my sisters won't know where to look for this or look for that. It's weird space. Weird, 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 mm-hmm. weird, weird space. Um, but I was, I was in fear that every day would be my last day. That sounds just horrifying to be it, living it's, like it's that. A, that reality, when I had shared it with my best friend, she was saying to, she was saying to me, it got really intense about five months ago and when I shared it with her she's like that is terrifying Mm -hmm. why are you in that space she's like I cannot imagine thinking that every five minutes is going to be like my last day like you know like my last breath Mm -hmm. she's like what is that about in the fear of sleeping because of it yeah and um my body automatically reacted to those thoughts I can't tell you how many times that I would just stop breathing in my sleep and then jump up with tears in my eyes and having to calm myself and listening to how I was breathing at the time, trying to catch my breath and hoping that it wasn't too loud that my sisters would wake up and rush in and be like, 
what is going on. Oh my gosh. So more of the secrecy because this is happening, but you're still trying not to, you know, like, because I, I, I did not want to be perceived as crazy. Like I've always been the overachiever, Mm -hmm. the one that doesn't fail at anything, things that don't make sense to people, but, um, I am able to get it done. And here am I in this space where like simple thing like breathing mm-hmm. like sleeping. is a struggle. Mm-hmm. Like sleeping is a struggle. And knowing that I can explain all of my ass as much as I want, that they may not get it because that's not their reality. And then of course, you know, like, okay, this is, is this her reality for the rest of her life? You know, mm-hmm. um, so That's it's it's question. just been extremely difficult. It's so, been I mean, extremely difficult. Yeah, <laughs> and I'm also imagining because this isn't all that rare of a case. I mean, your case sounds quite extreme, but the depression, the constant anxiety to the point where it is affecting your very basic biological functions like sleep mm-hmm. and breathing and eating is something that a lot of people in our society are very likely struggling with. And also because of this perception of, well, I don't want to be the crazy person. and I don't want to be a burden to my family or also keeping it bottled up. What would you say to those people? For the persons that find it difficult to say how they feel about those things, um, find safe spaces. And when I say safe spaces, I would like to say that all family and friends will always understand, but they don't always have the capacity to. Um, but to find whether it could be somebody that you look up to in society that might have expressed the same struggles or organizations that, um, that can help you with that, um, persons that you trust. And you have to... In your sharing, you have to be honest and say, I need help, you know, because that makes a difference. Mm -hmm. Than just stating what your situation is, you have to be honest and say, I need help or I can't do this for myself. Like my mom is a very spiritual person, not spiritual, but religious person. So for her, everything was centered around God and going to Mm -hmm. church. There was like three months where she would call me every morning and have devotion with me. And I always tell people my mom's prayers saved me because it would calm me, it would calm me at the beginning of the day. Mm-hmm. You know, she would just start the prayer. And if she, if she felt like it, she would say, okay, did you want to pray for something specifically or whatever? So we would do a lot of that. Um, but when I gave her information in doses, I didn't give her everything one time. Right. Um, and saying to her, your daughter is not well. I am not okay. I am sick. You know? Mm-hmm. And having, hearing myself saying that to my mother, knowing that, that there's a level of fear now placed in her, mm-hmm. to hearing her oldest child say, you know, I am sick and I'm going to be sick for a while, but I am taking the steps needed to recover. And things will look differently moving forward during my recovery, but I'm still your daughter. And how does she respond to that? Um, She said something that threw me off. She said out of my three kids, 
I've always had this fear that you would be one to commit suicide. Whoa. Okay. Okay. What? In a space of being honest with her. Uh-huh. She's like, I've carried that fear for a long time because your actions and your isolation would scare me, but I did not know how to talk to you about it. Mm. And she knew, like, if you pressured me before, I would just shut down. I would say nothing. I would just go missing. You just want to see me and you just want to hear from me. Wow. But that had hit me hard. She's like, I feel a lot of guilt saying it, but I've had this fear that you would be my child to commit suicide, the child that I have that would commit suicide. And did hearing that from her kind of bring you closer in a way? Because it seems like it's a very, like intimate sort of confession and to know yeah, that you were we seen in that way even when you didn't yeah, realize did. it it is it is weird because I had started my therapy at the time when we had a conversation mm-hmm. and I was focused on me and then I had to step back and start to talk to people in my spaces about how my actions affected them when I went into isolation and that was hard. So where I thought that the mask was on, mm-hmm. it actually wasn't. It was a matter of we just don't need know how to talk to you about it. And them wow. having a fear like this could be bad, but not knowing what sure to do. of it. Mm-hmm. And knowing that I cope by throwing myself into work and my creative projects. But that didn't work for me last year. And forced me to step back. I'm like, oh, the thing that I used to cope with no longer works. I don't like being this person. I don't like having this story. These are the people that I read about in the books and articles. I never for one thought that I would be one of those persons. You know? Like, I just felt like I was invincible from those experiences. Mm -hmm. I help people that go through those experiences but I'm not one of them. Mm-hmm. And it revealed itself to be that you are actually, do occupy that same space with them and your situation may be a bit worse. Because you're still human. You're still human. We forget that so easily. Yes. Again, your courage in sharing all of this is just so inspiring. So I really, really appreciate your openness on this topic. And I think that it will really help a lot of other people. But it's kind of like being an addict. You're like you're in recovery yeah. for all the years of your life. Um, and also learning to create from a happy place. I created and I've created stuff from dark spaces. Um, mm-hmm. And I always, knew, I always knew that was never healthy. Mm-hmm. I always knew I was never healthy because the times when I can point to being happy and joyous... I wrote not one piece of poem or story. I would just do my nine to five and nothing else. And I remember somebody would always say to me, you know, Lenisa, that maybe that's just your, that's how you function. I'm like, yeah, but that's a thin line to be on that I can only create from dark places, Mm -hmm. dark experiences. Amazing things. Like everything that you said that you know me from, they've been... They've been started as coping mechanisms for something I was dealing with or running away from at the time. So interesting. 
So they're amazing things, but I'm yeah. just like, I don't want that to be my story. You know, like she was a sad person that created all these amazing things that you can point to. That's not the story that I want to live on after I've died, mm-hmm. you know, or passed on or whatever. Um, yeah, but it's, it is something that I've been aware of for years, but I just talked about, eh, that's just my process. But I've had situations like, you know, professionals have said over the years, that is not okay. And you need to figure out like why it is that you cannot create unless there's some level of sadness attached to it. And that so, is my story. That is an incredible story. <laughs> it's an incredible story. Lenisa, thank you so much again. And I guess just in parting, if people are wanting to connect with you online or to follow you, where would be the best place for them to do so? Well, I'm about to relaunch my website and blog. Um, my book has been ready and has been delayed by two years now mm-hmm. because there's a lot of strong themes in there. And I have to be in a space to be able to talk to them, talk about them with people. You know, not just release it in the wind and then hope people take whatever I want to hide talk from about it. it. Yeah. And then hide from it. I wanted to talk about it. Um, so people can connect with me on Instagram mostly. Right now I've started posting again. I'm still navigating Twitter, just as a weird space. My handle on Twitter and Instagram is underscore Lenisa, L-I-N-I-S-A. And my website is www.lenisag.com. There are other things that are going to come on board soon, but I don't want to give that away yet. But they can connect with me there because now I'm in a space where I'm starting to share all these things. Awesome. Because it's a new awakening. It's a, I want to say new me, but it's kind of like new me. Um, Or should I say a better me? A more self-aware me, you know? Mm -hmm. Because all parts of me, um, past and present, I do accept. So. Lanisa 2.0. Yes, Lenisa 2.0. That's a good thing. Lenisa 2.0. I like that. That should be my, uh, a blog post. Lenisa 2.0. Yeah. Thank you so much for taking the time today. I really appreciate it. And thank you so much. Yeah, you're just such an inspiration. And oh, I you. wish you all the best in your journey. It sounds like you're really on the path now. And I just hope that you stick to it. I'm going to be an amazing case study at the end of all of this. <laughs> you know, like, okay, yeah. these are the steps you all need to take if you've been in this situation. Like, you know, mm-hmm, a great you know, success people, story. Yes, I will be that success story. Thank you for listening to this episode of Grassroots Radio. If you enjoyed the conversation, show some love and help spread the word. You can do that by subscribing on Apple, Google, YouTube, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Already subscribed? Consider leaving a five-star review. It helps other people find the show. If you have an idea for someone you want to see featured or a topic you want us to cover, let us know. DM us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at grassrootsANU or email us at thenewgrassroots at gmail.com. For more about NGR, visit us at thenewgrassroots.com. Until next time, this is 
Grassroots Radio.